It's through him that we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you could take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Ephesians. Start off a new year. We are starting a, a new study. And I love the fact that uh, the new year is starting on a Sunday and like the weeks all line up. And I just, I just like how neat and tidy that is. Uh, starting into the book of Ephesians. I hope everybody had a great Christmas last week and then sort of the week between the times, you know, where it's sort of like time freezes for that week. It's, it's really an awesome time where you just kind of eat whatever you want and then today you're like back on track. But I don't know about you how Christmas gifts went this year. One gift that I actually really enjoy getting that a lot of people are like, seems kind of like, I, I love gift cards. Anybody else out there, you're like, you love getting a gift card for Christmas? Because you're like, you know what, I can just, I don't know what I want, but this helps me sort of be able to use that. Speaking of gift cards, a recent CBS News story started this way. You may want to check your junk drawer. Nearly half of all Americans are holding on to $21 billion in unused gift cards. $21 billion. Okay, that's a lot of money, according to a new report from creditcards.com. That average is out to about $175 per person, according to the National Retail Federation. They already got their money. They're happy for you to put it in the junk drawer and then get it lost in there with all the other stuff that's in the junk drawer. They got their money, and unless you actually come in the store, they don't actually have to hand over anything. It's kind of a win-win for them if that $21 billion never gets used. My point here this morning is not just to tell you to go home and check the, the, the junk drawer or take another look through some of the Christmas cards you got to make sure you didn't overlook something special in there. My point is that gift cards are only useful if you spend them. Right? They don't do anything really for you. I mean, you can be happy having them, but they're only really useful for you if you spend them. And the point I want to impress upon you is the same is true of the spiritual riches that we have in Jesus. You can have all the spiritual riches that, that Ryan read about in, in Ephesians 1, all these spiritual riches on your spiritual bank account, but if it doesn't change the way you live, it's almost no better, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're no good to you. The book of Ephesians, as we get started into it today, is all about the spiritual riches we have in Christ. You notice that little phrase that came up in verse 3? We, we have all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, in a relationship with Jesus. We have all the riches that God intends for us in Jesus. Now, the message of the book of Ephesians, if you wanted to say, here's what it is in one sort of sentence, is about the unity, unity of Christians in Christ. Makes a big emphasis on the fact that it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or you're a Gentile. In modern terms, it doesn't matter if you're black or white. None of those artificial distinctions matter. If you're a believer in Jesus, there's absolute equality, absolute unity in the body of Christ, which is called the church. Here's why. Because in Christ, we all have access to the same spiritual riches. There's not different levels of hierarchies of, well, some people get these riches and others get these ones. If you are in Christ, if you are saved, if you are a Christian, you have all the same riches that every believer has ever had in the history of the world means there's unity. It's the basis for that. It's all about what God's done for us in Christ to make us one in Christ. It's, it lays out the basis for our unity and then calls for us to live like it. Now, here's something that's very important as we begin. Just look in verse 3. 
just to illustrate it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him. Notice that those are plural. This is not just about me and Jesus, right? Like, ah, Jesus has saved me. I'm on my way to heaven now. The book of Ephesians fights against the modern tendency to treat everything as just about sort of me. It, 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 It goes to war against our natural individualism and the individualism that's sort of so natural to us as Americans and says this is not just about you as an individual. This is about us as the people of God. It's not just about, hey, I've got a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to go hunting today and think about him instead of going to church. This is to say that as a believer, there is something that happens corporately. There is a new relationship we enter into. There's a new family to which we belong. There's a new building of which we are a part. If we all share the same riches, then we have real unity in Jesus. Real unity that's not just sort of hypothetical, but actually is lived out in our relationships within the church. The great tragedy is this. We Christians have been granted the greatest gift card imaginable. It's not just like 10 bucks to get one coffee at Starbucks. No, it's given us the eternal, infinite riches of Jesus. And then it goes and sits in the junk drawer and we live as if we don't even have it. We're spiritually rich, but we're living like we're spiritually poor. This morning as we overview the book of Ephesians, here's my plea to you. You would live like you are spiritually rich. Now that that, that adverb spiritually is really important. I'm sort of tongue-in-cheek calling this series the prosperity gospel. How many of you know what the prosperity gospel is? If you go home and turn on Trinity Broadcast Network, there will be any number of a parade of preachers who will tell you that God wants you to have your best life now, and he wants you to have health and wealth. And if you send money conveniently to their ministry, God will bless you, right? And he'll give you lots of money and a nice car and a nice boat and a bigger house. That's called the prosperity gospel, and it is from the pit of hell. All right? It is ungodly. It is contrary to Scripture. Nowhere does the Bible say, believe in Jesus and your life will be wonderful. It doesn't say, sort of, you know, vote for Pedro and all your wildest dreams will come true. It doesn't teach that. When I say prosperity gospel, I'm using the title ironically. It's how the good news makes us spiritually rich. By and large, when you read the book of Acts and you read the New Testament, you find out that early Christians overwhelmingly were not well off materially. Overwhelmingly, they were sort of from the bottom of society. The church was made up of slaves. The church was made up quite often of the outcasts of society. Often it was not the rich. It was not the powerful, as 1 Corinthians 1 tells us. But it it was the weak who made up the early church. The disciples of Jesus didn't come from the upper crust in society, but from sort of the lower middle classes and even on down. Christians through history have faced suffering. Jesus told us to expect it. Take up your cross. Follow me. And yet in the midst of financial and often physical hardship, we can say I am spiritually rich and alive in Christ. Now let me just support this notion that riches is is, is sort of one of the ways that Ephesians phrases this. I say the main theme here is, is unity, but it uses this metaphor of riches or of fullness, like something being completely full to overflowing. Have your Bibles open. Follow along here as I just highlight some of this. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, in whom we have redemption, the in whom is in Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to what? 
the riches of his grace. Okay, the, what are the riches? What is the currency that's in the bank account? It's grace. It's not dollars or euros or pesos. It's grace. That's the currency that these riches come in. We look on down to verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, like when all of history comes together, he might gather together in one, there's that idea of unity, all things in Christ. Okay, Jesus is going to unite everything, heaven and earth, and believers, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. We get the idea of fullness, like everything in, in Jesus. Look at verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope. So Paul's praying here. He's saying, Christians, I want you to know something. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glory. Okay, here the currency is glory. We, we have all the glory of God that's been revealed and given to us in Christ. So we have the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. Verse 23. The church is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Chapter 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come, he okay, were saved by grace so that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Chapter 3 and verse 8, unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 16, Again, Paul breaks out into prayer. That's a theme in Ephesians. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Verse 19. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, God is infinite and he's saying, and I'm praying that you'll be filled with the infinite God. Like, pfft, mind is blown. He just finished saying, love that is like unknowable and praying that you would know it. Like Ephesians is taking big God-sized ideas and saying, that's all yours. You have infinite riches to your account. Chapter 4 and verse 10. Jesus descended is the same one that also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So there's the idea of fullness again. Verse 13, till we come in the knowledge, or till we come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, the glass is not half empty here. The glass is full and it's overflowing and going over the counter like we've got the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 13, okay, we looked at that one. Chapter 5 and verse 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is the means or the agent or the instrument of taking all the fullness of God and filling us. So whichever metaphor, whether you like the banking metaphor of riches or the glass metaphor of being full, Paul is saying, Christians, you're rich, you're full, you have all the fullness of God, you have the riches of his glory, the riches of his grace so what I want to do with our remaining time is ask and answer four questions about our riches and just answer it from Ephesians as a whole. And then what we'll do for like the next eight years is go verse by, no, it'll probably take us through June, go verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. But I want to start off asking this question, what are the riches that we have? Let's catalog these riches. I already said that one of the main themes is unity in Christ. That is the main overwhelming concern of the book, is to say, Christians, Jews, Gentiles, warring hostile ethnic groups who would look down on one another and say, we're better than the other one. He's saying, in Jesus, because you have all the same riches, because you're all in Christ, you're one, you're one body. That's the theme. 
Because we share in the same salvation, belong to the same body, and anticipate the same hope, we are one. The term one, the term unity, and the, the idea of together, those terms show, show up 30 times in the book of Ephesians. It's only six chapters, 30 times we get the word one or unity or with together ideas. 30 times. By the way, the word unity only appears twice in the New Testament, and you guessed it, they both appear in the book of Ephesians. This is not just about me. This is about us. Now, this is radical because I think we're all like, oh, yes, the unity of the church. And we sort of get this idea of like ecumenical councils where everybody sings, blessed be the tie that binds. And it's all a little mushy and sentimental. No, this is radical. The ethnic hatred that existed between Jew and Gentile in Paul's day was intense. On Temple Mount, there was a barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the court of Israel that says, if you cross over this line and you're not a Jew, you just took your own life. Like That's intense. We have in our own history the, the idea of segregation, of just dehumanizing and a wicked, wicked practice. This is like that on steroids and a, with religion undergirding it. Intense hatred. And by the way, the hatred was both directions here. The the Gentiles didn't think much of the Jews with their weird diet and their weird way of doing things. And by the way, it's equally radical for us today. I think we would all agree we don't live in a world that is particularly united. Everybody is doing some form of identity politics, both the left, both the right. Nobody has a monopoly on it. To say, here's my group and my interests and all the other groups are bad and we have grievances and we're all victims of some kind. Where The book of Ephesians comes along and says the basis of unity in the church is not based on some kind of identity group. It's based on being in Christ. You don't have unity because you did some kind of like critical theory and found out who the bad guys were and then just shamed them for the rest of eternity. Nor did you have it by pretending that nothing bad ever happened. You have unity because Jesus took the penalty and he has made you one. Now this is radical for today because Sunday morning... At 11 in, the mor- 11 in the morning remains the most segregated hour in America. And the book of Ephesians says the middle wall of partition has been torn down. Let me, let me show you. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Let's start in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometime afar off, okay, Gentiles who had no claim in, in Jesus, have been made nigh by the blood of Jesus. You've been brought close. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, both Jew and Gentile. He has made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Remember that wall I said that was in the temple? It's like Jesus destroyed that. Not literally, but spiritually. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, of both groups, one new man. The church is a new humanity thus making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. That's beautiful. That is awesome. Verse 19, now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Ephesians destroys our individualistic idea of Christianity being about just me and Jesus. It destroys the notion that we can sort of have our little demographically based churches. Uh, sort of the, uh, the Rick Warren idea, like find your little demographic and go and fill your church with people. Like, No, the church should be made up of all kinds of people. 
There should be no black church and no white church. There should just be the church of Jesus Christ, and it should be reflected in the way that we live and the way we worship. That's the first rich, rich, riches that God gives to us. Unity. The second one that I want to catalog here, I'm just going to summarize it this way, the blessings that we have in Christ. Ryan read a minute ago at the beginning of the service, the the great blessing that begins the book of Ephesians. Blessed be God who has given us all spiritual blessings in Christ. Let me sort of shorthand that for you. Everything you got when you were saved. What does it mean to be saved? He says, all of that you got in Christ. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were redeemed by Christ, getting full forgiveness You've been sealed with the Spirit of God. All these blessings that are in Christ. That phrase, in Christ or in him, shows up 38 times in the book of Ephesians. We don't get these blessings anywhere else except in Jesus. All the blessings of salvation are found in one place and one place only, Christ. We're not going to get them anywhere else. We're not going to get them through anyone else, not through our efforts, through Jesus. By the way, did you notice how that formula is Trinitarian? The Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, the Spirit applies and keeps us. Trinity is all over the place in the book of Ephesians. Sometimes as Christians, we act like the Trinity is like this embarrassing appendage to our faith. You're like, man, I really hope that I don't run into a Muslim, and I hope he doesn't ask about the Trinity because I don't know how to explain it. Ephesians doesn't sort of hide it and put it in an appendix somewhere. It sort of leads the way to say, you were redeemed by the triune God. Paul prays through the triune God. He says, you have access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Over and over again, we have these blessings in Christ. This is who we are in Christ. Now, this is so important. We live in a world where everybody is finding their identity in what they feel. Okay? So someone wakes up one morning and they say, I feel like I have a different gender than the gender that God actually gave me. Or someone comes along and says, I I feel this way or I have found my identity in a, a label that a psychologist gave to me. And that's who I am. And for someone, anyone to question, that's an attack on your very identity, who you are. What Ephesians tells us is that our identity as Christians is in Christ. This is why it is so absurd for the trend today for people who are saying, well, I'm a gay Christian. Okay, you might be a Christian who's in Christ, who is battling against sin, being sanctified and repenting and putting sin to death, but your identity is not in any particular sin. You might struggle with that sin, but your identity is in Christ. In Christ, according to Ephesians, is I am not the sin that I struggle with. According to Ephesians, I am a saint. According to Ephesians, in Christ I am chosen. In Christ I am redeemed. In Christ I am sealed. In Christ I am empowered. In Christ I am alive. So absurd to find our identity in what I feel or how much melanin is in my skin or who I voted for or in a mental illness or in a label. I am in Christ. Think about how that changes the battle lines in your, ba- in your fight against sin. Who's going to be more victorious against sin? The Christian who wakes up and says, well, you know, I live in a fallen world. The flesh is strong and temptation's always with me. And I may fill in the blank. Therefore, I will always struggle with fill in the blank. Versus the Christian who wakes up who says, 
In Jesus, I'm a saint. God sees me as absolutely holy and perfect in Jesus, and all of my sin has been paid for by Jesus, and the Spirit of God is progressively giving me all the power I need to have victory over sin. And while I won't be perfect in this life, and while it is true I will battle sin to the day I die, that is not who I am. The second person's the one who's going to have victory over sin, not the first one. I hear people say, well, I'm just a man, so I'm going to just struggle with lust. We might have a bent towards that sin, but if you're in Christ, you're first a Christian. And that means you can have victory over that sin. God gives us all that we need in Jesus to have victory over him. That's why we should not use crutches like labels and backgrounds and diagnoses to say, that's why I'm not going to be obedient to Jesus. In Christ, that is who you are. We have also a third richness, a third blessing. I don't know, what's the singular of rich? Wealth. Um, Verses 18 and 19, we have all the power of God. Look in verse 19 of Ephesians 1. He says, here's what I want you to know. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? So Paul pretty much took every Greek word there is for power and might and strength and just dumped it into one verse. And I don't think the point here is to parse them out and say, well, this word for power means that and that one means this. It's to say, you have the power of the infinite, omnipotent God at your disposal. That's awesome. We have power in Christ. And he goes on to say, you know what this power is? You know what it did? Look at verse 20. The same power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is not just sort of, oh yeah, God's power. This is death-defeating power. You say, how do I get access to it? Well, Ephesians 2 says, if you're in Christ, you have had it. Just as Jesus was dead and was raised from the dead, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and you've been raised with Christ. There's people who will say today, oh, you can be a believer in Jesus, but then just live this life of defeat and failure and carnality all your Christian life. I don't think so. I don't think you can have an encounter with the sovereign, omnipotent, infinite power of God and be the same. Like, you don't have encounters with, like, high-voltage, you know, power lines and then walk away, like, completely the same as when you went in. Like, that just doesn't work. Changes us. We have power in Christ. Another one of these blessings we have, new life in Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 5 says, When we were dead in sins, he has quickened us, made us alive together with Christ. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. We have new life in Christ. Conversion, when somebody gets saved, it is a resurrection. It is a miracle that is equal to the resurrection of Jesus Christ every time. New life in Christ. We were dead, but now we're alive. We were lost, we've been found. Now, this is all sort of very indicative and like listing out these riches that we have. It's sort of like here's the spreadsheet with all of your assets. You've got unity and life and his power. What should this do? Well, I think Paul shows us what we're supposed to do. He begins this letter and he breaks out immediately into worship. Blessed be God. This is the Barakah formula. This is Hebrew worship. This is blessed be God. Like he's awesome and he's glorious. After he does that, he goes at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. 
He starts praying and worshiping. And then he goes on in Ephesians chapter 3, at the end of Ephesians 3, he again breaks out into prayer. Here's my point. We catalog these riches. What should it do? It should light an inferno of worship in our hearts and our lives. That's why I say, and by the way, worship finds its fruition in gathering with other worshipers. We don't just sort of worship Jesus by ourselves, but we get together with other people. There were people last night who, for some crazy reason, wanted to stay up till midnight to celebrate the new year coming in. And it's a lot more fun if you can get together with other people who want to do the same crazy thing. Um, by the way, here's how I brought in the new year. The fireworks were going off outside, woke me up, and then I rolled over and went back to sleep. Like That tells you everything you need to know about my boring personality. But these riches should lead us to worship to come and sing with all of our hearts to Jesus. I finished out reading Psalm 149 and Psalm 150 this morning in my devotions. I encourage you to go read those to get a sense for how exuberant and alive biblical worship is. But I'll move on to a second question about our riches. That's what, what are the riches? Unity and life and power, blessings. But here's a second question. How do we, or, or who gets these riches? Who gets these riches? And we've, we've answered that in part by saying people who are in Christ. But let's break that down a little bit more. I want to show you how these riches are received, who it is who gets them. Look back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul's the one who is writing this. This is the great apostle. We know he was a persecutor of the church. He's radically saved on the road to Damascus and goes and becomes just this the, the zealous missionary for Jesus. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Like, I didn't go and do this on my own. And then he says, here's who I'm writing to. To the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So everybody he's addressing here are saints and faithful. Okay, good. Yep, I can see that. Now, what is a saint? A saint is not someone who the Vatican comes along and sort of canonizes and then comes up with some miracle they supposedly work, so then you can go pray to them and then give money to the church. That's not what a saint is. A saint is simply a, a holy one, simply one who has been set apart to God. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. I'm Saint Sam. Right, like that's pretty cool. Um, it, you, you could take that label. It's totally fine to call Paul Saint Paul because he's a saint, and so are you, and so am I. It's a designation not for a super Christian. Like, well, there's Christians, and boom, and then there's saints. No, no, no. Every Christian is a saint. The church of Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians, is composed of all saints the world over from all of history. There's this idea of what's called the body of Christ, what you might theologically call the universal church, made of those who are saints in Jesus in a relationship with him. We are all saints in the body of Christ. Now, those words at Ephesus, uh, interesting, some of the earliest copies of Ephesians don't have those words. And so some people are like, well, it probably wasn't written to the Ephesians uh, by the way, the vast majority of copies do have that. And probably the reason is this. Ephesus was the main city in the region of Asia Minor on the, on the coast of modern-day Turkey. If you read Acts 18 and 19, and I encourage you to do that, Acts 18 and 19, Paul goes there and he spends two and a half years in the city of Ephesus. And while he's there, he reaches all the surrounding area and church plants are going out and there's this incredible work of God and the people are saved out of their life of the occult and they come and burn all their books and there's 50,000 uh, coins worth um, 
denarii is worth of material that's burned. That's a lot of material that's burned. There's a riot in the, in the temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. It's a big deal. The city of Ephesus is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Paul's there for two and a half years. Churches are started all in the area. More than likely, Paul sends this letter not just to Ephesus, but for this to make the rounds in the other churches in the surrounding area. Right, so like Ephesus is sort of like the main town. This is where the big church is. But there's other churches around. Because some people are like, ah, this can't be written by Paul. It doesn't have the personal greetings, blah, blah, blah. And unbelief sort of takes over. Makes way more sense to say, yes, this is going to Ephesus, but it's also going to other churches. That's why the teaching is somewhat general. The absence of that personal greeting at the end of the letter and the absence in a lot of copies of at Ephesus suggests that this was what's called a cyclical letter that went around to a lot of different places. And here's the implication. The riches that Ephesians offers is not just for Christians who happen to live at Ephesus in the year 66 AD. These riches are for all Christians, for everyone. If you are in Christ, if you're a believer, you're a saint. And by the way, you say, I don't feel like a saint because I don't always live like a saint. That's who we are in Jesus, and what God the Holy Spirit is doing day in and day out in our lives is helping us become more saintly. You are simply becoming who you are in Christ. So God's like, you, you become a believer, and in Jesus you are immediately a saint, perfect in his sight, and then for the rest of our lives, God works to close that gap between our identity and our behavior. Now there's another designation for the, for the recipients of these riches. So to the saints, and then look at the end of verse 1, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not two different groups. It's not like there's the saints, and then there's the faithful way over here. These are describing one in the same group of people, to those who are faithful in Christ. And here's what I think faithful means, those who are filled with faith. Hey, those who are believers in Jesus. You say, how do I become a saint? It's by believing in Jesus. And that faith leads to a life of continuing to believe in him, which we call faithfulness. So if you're going to be faithful, you need to be full of faith. That's the idea. It says you're in Christ. You're in this vital, life-giving relationship with Jesus. Spiritual riches. I want to come back around now to balance out something I said earlier. Earlier I said this is about our corporate identity in Jesus. But spiritual riches aren't for those who just happen to be members of Christian churches but have no relationship with Jesus. Spiritual riches don't just come to those who are part of a, a Christian family or live in a so-called Christian nation. By the way, there's only one Christian nation, and that Christian nation is the Church of Jesus Christ. That's the only nation that the Bible describes who all of its citizens are born again. Okay, according to Ephesians 2, or 1 Peter 2, verse 8, you're a holy nation, speaking to the universal Church of Jesus Christ. But the point here is, you don't get these riches simply by hanging out with Christians. Like, I go to Cloverleaf Baptist Church, I joined it, I'm on the membership roll. You enjoy these riches by entering into a real relationship with Christ. And maybe you need to do that today. You need to enter into that relationship with Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ is the ultimate place of belonging. All who believe are placed into the family of God. We are members of Christ's body. We are the bride of Jesus. We are a society of outcasts. We're the club for the excluded, the home for the homeless, being part of the family of God. I don't mean member at Cloverleaf Baptist Church, but I mean being a member in the body of Christ. Now, these riches are for saints and for those who are faithful in Jesus. 
But how do we receive these riches? Because this sounds really awesome. These riches are incredible. They're infinite. They're for believers, for saints. How do we get them? Well, here's the third question. How do we receive those riches? Let's notice how Ephesians shows us how the riches get distributed. And quite simply, verse 2 lays it out. Grace be to you. Okay, we get them by grace. We get them by God's saving, sovereign grace. You can get rich a few different ways in today's world. You can be like, I want to become a millionaire. Uh, Okay, a few different ways you could do this. One way is you could actually go like earn more than you spend, make some really good investments. So you earn more than you spend. You start at an early age. You swirl money away into the, into the stock market, and all things working out well. You could end up being a millionaire without ha- actually having sort of a millionaire type of income. It's very doable. So you can get rich through hard work. You can get rich through sort of diligence, a combination of diligence, good luck, and the right career paths and the right connections where you get a good job and you just are disciplined. You can gain wealth. Conversely, you could get rich through criminal activity. You can go like and plunder a bunch of people, rob a bunch of people. There's sort of leaders of different countries in the world that like countries are totally impoverished. And then they're living in a place where literally the toilet is made of gold. Like they didn't come by that honestly. All right. That's wealth that was plundered from other people. Uh, or you could sort of inherit your riches. Like dad works really hard. And so boom, you inherit those riches. So you could earn it, you could steal it, or you could receive it as an inheritance or as a, as a gift. In other words, we could just categorize earning riches two different ways. One of them is you do something. I go rob a bank. I work really hard. Okay, those are not exactly the same, but they're both things that you do. Or you receive them as a, as a gift that someone else gives to you. The riches that we have in Ephesians, there's not a multiple choice like, well, here's three different paths to earning spiritual riches. There's only one. And it is through grace. If you want a good synonym for grace, put the word generosity. Generosity, definitionally, is not something that you earn. Some people are like, well, because you were really nice to me, I'll be generous to you. Well, that's not really generosity. That's sort of quid pro quo. Paul makes it really clear we did not earn our spiritual riches. And there's no way that we could ever steal them. We got them as a gift. So the letter begins with grace be to you, which is Paul's normal way of greeting. But that takes special significance in the book of Ephesians. Notice how he ends the letter in verse, chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins and he ends with grace. And in the middle, he describes what grace accomplishes. In Ephesians 1, verse 6, he says, To the praise of his glory, the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. We're accepted, the beloved one is Jesus. We're accepted in him. Okay, that word translated uh, made accepted is the same, same word that's rendered grace. It's just the verbal form. You've been graced, favored into the beloved one. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is the mountaintop of celebrating God's grace. How did we get saved? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, okay, salvation by grace through faith, the whole package, including the wrapping paper, was not of yourselves. Grace is not because of anything you did. Faith is not because of anything you did. The whole thing is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Here's how gifts work. Somebody else pays for them. Okay, the gift cards that I got for Christmas, it wasn't like, hey, you pay 50%, they pay 50%. No, the person pays for the gift card and then gives it to you. Think about how horrible a gift it would be if someone gave you a gift card that was not loaded 
And then you had to go to the store and activate it yourself. That would stink. God's grace is not that way. The, the gift card is fully loaded and activated. Because it's generosity, it is completely free on God's part. It is not coerced. There's nothing humanly done that conditions it. It's unleashed according to God's own purpose. You read Ephesians 1. That makes it really clear. It's on the basis of him having predestined us, verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. Not the good pleasure of our will, but the good pleasure of his will. Verse 11 says that we have been predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. To say, this is all because of God's plan, because of God's initiative. We're saved according to God's free will and God's free grace in Christ. It literally had nothing to do with us. As Ephesians 2 verse 9, not of works lest any man should boast. We can't look at salvation and say, well, I did that little part of it. Oh, no, it's all of grace. Grace expels boasting. Grace destroys pride. Grace humbles the sinner. There can be no snide sense of being superior to others. That's why the book of Ephesians is cutting off at the root ethnic pride, cutting off at the root racism. If we say the only way that you got in is because of God's grace and there was literally nothing good in you, including your ethnicity, then there's no grounds for boasting in that and there can be unity in the body of Christ. Now, how did we get this? How are these riches distributed? Okay, back to Ephesians 1 and verse 2. Grace be unto you and peace. Peace in one sense is the result of grace, a new standing with God. But peace in Ephesians is also shorthand for the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus is our peace. And then it says in verse 17, and he came and preached peace. And then in the famous armor of God passage, your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, shalom, wholeness, right relationship with God. So we could say that we get these riches. These riches are distributed by God's grace and also by God's gospel. Now, what is the gospel? It is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. For wretched, hell-deserving sinners, Jesus died in our place. Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose again from the dead. And he offers forgiveness to anyone and everyone who will believe. That's the gospel. That's the good news. By the way, faith is absolutely essential. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You had to hear the gospel. In whom also after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's by grace through faith. Faith is essential. You cannot be saved without it, without putting your faith, your trust, your reliance, your confidence on the finished work of Jesus and Jesus alone. Just because this is all by God's sovereign grace does not mean that it's automatic, that you're just walking down the road one day and poof, you're struck by lightning. You're like, I'm saved now. Like, no, you hear the gospel and you understand the gospel and you respond to it. You receive it by faith. You make a choice. You make a decision that's essential in our conversion. So these two things go together, God's grace, what he does, and faith, the human response that is wrought by his grace. It's very clear. These riches are not earned. You're here today and you're saying, well, but I'm going to church. That's got to be good for something, right? Or I made some really good New Year's resolutions that I really intend and mean really well that may not 
make it through February, but I really mean well. Like, isn't that worth something? According to Ephesians, it's worth absolutely nothing. The only thing that's worth anything in saving us and giving us a relationship with God is grace through faith. We can't steal them. We can no more plunder these riches than I could go in with a BB gun and rob Fort Knox. It cannot be done. The riches of grace belong to saints according to God's sovereign grace through God's saving gospel. That's how riches are distributed. But I want to conclude with this. How do we enjoy these riches? You got the gift card. How do I use it? Sometimes people will send me these digital gift cards. I'm sort of tech savvy because I'm a millennial, but not really like super tech savvy. Um, and so I'm like, okay, how do I use this? I got one the other day and I had to get like this code and like go online and go to the cash register. It was kind of complicated. Like, how do I access these riches that are on my account? How do I use the ATM machine to get these into my wallet, so to speak? That's what the second half of Ephesians is all about. Chapters one through three lay out what all the riches are that we have. It's all about here's the theology, here's the doctrine. Ephesians 4 to 6 is like, now here's how to live it. So look at Ephesians 4 verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. You notice that word walk? Walking is a very ordinary thing to do, right? Now, flying with a jetpack, well, that's pretty awesome. You've got to have a jetpack. But walking, you know, like that's a pretty ordinary thing that we... Most of us walked into the room here today, and that's how we move. What that phrase walk means is how we live our ordinary Monday through Saturday kind of lives. It's talking about what we do when the alarm clock goes off. It's talking about how we behave when we're interacting with other people. We're talking about the ordinary stuff of life. So we just went from seated in the heavenlies in Christ to, all right, Put your shoes on and you go for a walk. Here's how you live your life. Here's how you enjoy the riches. So here's how the book of Ephesians is put together. Chapters 1 to 3, here's what you have. Here's the riches, cataloged, distributed, received. Ephesians 4 to 6, here's how you live those out. Realize people who are rich tend to live differently. Tend to. There there are exceptions. Uh, We hear occasionally about billionaires who are still like, sleeping on their best friend's couch and, like, just saving everything. But generally, if you have a lot of money, it changes the way you live. Just imagine this morning that somebody anonymously was like, I just put $10 million on your bank account. Enjoy. It's got, like, this handwritten note. And you look at your bank account, and you're like, it really is there. This isn't a scam. Like, I'm going to wait a few days. It's still there. The bank is like, it's legit. How would your life change if you had $10 million? Now, for the longest time, I, used to, I, I drove a 1998 Toyota Avalon. I just sold it a couple years ago. It's a really good car. It's probably, actually, I know it was still going because I got a letter in the mail saying it showed up in a police auction. Like, I don't know what happened with the, the, the subsequent buyer. Uh, but, okay, the, the, this 1998 Toyota Avalon, it was a great car. But listen, if I had $10 million, I probably wouldn't keep driving the 1998 Toyota Avalon that had the leaky uh, power steering and that went when you turn the steering wheel. I probably would get a car that didn't have a leaking you know, power steering thing. I might actually get one that like, has a working CD player. Like, it would be pretty awesome. Right? Like, you get $10 million, you will live differently. It would be absurd to have $10 million and still drive the 1998 Toyota Avalon. It would be absurd to have $10 million and still have your, your cell phone that like, looks like a hammer got dropped on it, 
right? You, you would, it, it, let me tell you a story from when we were kids when we lived in New Zealand. Our family didn't have a lot of money. We would go to McDonald's, and we would get one ice cream sundae and five spoons. We would all share the ice cream sundae. When we came to America, like where things were a little bit better, dad had a better job, we got our own ice cream sundaes, right? You live differently when you're rich. In the same way, Paul is saying, Christians, quit living like you're poor. Quit living like you have to share the ice cream sundae. You're you're rich, live differently. So what is that going to look like? This raises the bigger question of what's the relationship between theology and how we live. We live in a day when a lot of Christians and a lot of evangelical churches want to sort of just sort of throw doctrine out the window because it's boring. Doctrine's really boring. Tell me how to have a good marriage and how to do, good, do well at work. That's why you have like thousands of people who will fill a stadium to listen to Joel Osteen tell them how wonderful they are. And not many people who are like, tell me what the Bible tells me about my riches in Christ. According to Paul, What is true theologically determines how I actually live my life. It determines what my ethics are. It determines what my walk is. Once we get hold of the truths about our unity in Jesus, our redemption, the sealing, the illumination, the regeneration, the reconciliation that is ours in Jesus, we will live differently. A lot of times we want to skip Ephesians 1 to 4 and just go to the part in Ephesians 5 about like, hey, how do I have a good marriage? But you really need to start in Ephesians 1 verse 1 and get all of the truth. So when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, the as Christ loved your church is a meaningful motivation to go do the dishes for your wife. Or wives, be subject to your own husbands as the church is to Christ. I don't just jump right into that. I need to understand how the church is subject to Christ so that, wife, you can learn to to, to, to submit to godly leadership in the home when you don't feel like it. The gospel motivates and changes the way that we live. We have to understand the why before we get to the how-to. Now, what is the how-to? Let me just summarize this for you. That word walk gives us the, the framework of the rest of the book. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 calls us to live in unity. He's saying, okay, you have this, action, this unity in Christ. It's one of the, one of the riches. You're going to actually live in this humble kind of way where you forgive and welcome one another. Look at verse 2 of Ephesians 4. With all lowliness and meekness, with all longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You have unity in Jesus. You know what this means? Forgiving that person. Putting up with that person whose way of life or the way that they act is different than yours. And saying the unity that we have in Christ is more important than the superficial things that divide us. So living richly, how do we enjoy the riches? It means living in unity. It means enjoying fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the reasons we're doing these fellowship home groups this year is we think it's really important that Christians really get to know each other. Right now, we're not really getting to know each other. We're learning God's word, which is crucial and it is important. But we need those times where we're, we're going we're to talk and we're going to fellowship and we're going to pray with and for each other in a place where we feel comfortable and transparent, just being open with each other about what's going on in our lives. Here's another way to live richly, is to live in purity. Ephesians 4.17 says, we don't, I don't want you to walk, Paul says, to walk henceforth as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. He's saying you used to live in this way where you were enmeshed in corruption and immorality and rebellion against God. He says you are different now. 
Earlier in the book, he says you were dead and you've been made alive. He's saying, here's what it looks like to live like an alive person. You don't live under the domination of sin. You're saying you used to, 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 to lie, but now you speak truth. You used to steal, but now you give. You used to, used to use corrupt speech, now you use your speech to build people up. You, you, need, you used to engage in fornication and immorality. Now you love other people so much, you don't just treat them as objects for your own desires and whims. He says that's a pure life. Because we are rich in Christ, we don't live in sin's poverty anymore. We do not tolerate sexual immorality in our lives. We don't tolerate deception in our tongues. We don't tolerate anger in our hearts. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Then there will be the living in charity. So there's living in unity. There's living in purity. There's living then in charity. He says in Ephesians 5 verse 1, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. Later on in the book, he'll work this out in the home. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Parents, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of Christ. Servants, be obedient to your masters. Masters, treat them with kindness and equality and justice. Living in, in, in charity and in genuine love. I cannot think of a richer portrait of life than belonging to a body of believers who love each other, who have real unity, real, not just superficial unity, but real unity in diversity. Listen, a choir where everyone is singing unison is not as beautiful as a choir where people are singing in four-part harmony. And so too in the church, we don't sing all the, the same parts, but we do sing the same tune. We believe the same gospel, but we do have diversity in the body of Christ, and Christ is more glorified in that diversity, in unity, and unity and diversity. But I can't think of a richer life than living in unity and living a life of purity where you don't have all the regrets and guilt and wreckage that sin brings, and you are enmeshed in these relationships that are marked by the rule of love, where a husband really loves his wife and sacrifices for her, and a wife genuinely respects and reverences her husband, and children obey their parents, and parents are raising their children to be like Jesus. Like That's a beautiful life. That is a rich life. I didn't say a word about materialism. I didn't say a word about how much was in your bank account or how much you were making an hour or whether or not you had cancer. All those other things can be swirling on around you, but in Jesus you have these riches, and Paul is saying you can live like it. The final aspect of enjoying these riches, at the end of the book, Paul says live in victory. So you live in unity, you live in purity, you live in charity. Then you live in victory. Finally, my brethren, Ephesians 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, if you read the whole book of Ephesians, you'll find out that Jesus is seated far above all of those spiritual enemies. And then you'll find out that in, in Christ, we're seated with Jesus. So this is not a, well, stand and struggle and fight, and you might just lose. No, the war has already been won. We're in a mopping up operation. We have real victory over the enemy. We don't enter the battle as lone soldiers, but as an army. 
This is not like you know, Call of Duty where you're like one dude who goes out and wins World War II. Like that's not how it works. Armies win wars. United churches enjoy spiritual victory. And at the head of the army is the conquering Christ who has already crushed the head of the serpent. If you're not a Christian here today, everything that I've been saying is what is true for only for those who have been born again and have a real relationship with Jesus. If you're not a Christian, what are you living for? How do you define what it is to be truly rich? Is it just simply to pile up as much cash as possible? To have as much fun as you can? And then sort of hope for the best when you get old and try not to think about what will happen when you die? Is that really all there is? And what's the point of it all when life is said and done, when the doctor says that you're not going home this time, when hospice says you won't get better, when science can do no more for you and you're ready to face the end? Have you really lived a rich life? Is that richness? What if real wealth is not about the money in the bank, but the riches of Christ that are yours by faith? What if real joy is not about a great time on the next cruise? of being in Christ? What if true belonging is not having like a cool club or like this online thing that you're a part of, but being part of the body of Christ? What if real hope is the hope of eternity, not just uh, the hope of a better season for your team or the hope of a better, a better promotion at work or a better relationship next time around? What if there's more? What if you're missing out on the feast that God offers you in Christ? And if you're a Christian and you're spiritually rich, I, I am convinced that we have settled for a Christian life that is just a shadow of that which the New Testament offers to us. I'm convinced that we have settled for just sort of crumbs at the table when there's like this whole feast and steaks and mashed potatoes and gravy on the table waiting for us. I'm convinced that we've got a lot of gift cards that are stashed in the drunk the junk drawers of our spiritual lives. It is my plea for you today to say, do I really believe the word of God? Do I really believe that these riches are mine in Jesus? Because I would suggest to you, if you really believe that they are yours, you'll live like it. If you really believe there's money on that gift card, you'll live like it. If you're a Christian, you are spiritually rich. You have the riches of blessings in Christ, life in Christ, unity in Christ. So are you walking, here's the test, are you walking in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you walking in purity in the midst of a world that is a moral sewer? Are you living in charity when our flesh is calling you to live in selfishness? And are you living in victory in the face of an enemy that wants to destroy you? You've got a gift card that says eternal riches on it. Don't leave it in the junk drawer. Don't leave it unspent. Father.